choir. That was beautiful. This morning, we're going to look at Acts 25, not the entire chapter, but the first 22 verses, Acts 25, 1 through 22. So I'd invite you to take a moment and find your, find your way there. If you don't have a Bible, you can grab one from the pew rack. Our passage is on 934. I don't, uh, I don't like to begin a sermon with an antagonistic tone, but I've, I've, just, I've just about had it. This is, I guess, a bit of a confession. I've just about had it with the cultural calendar police. The cultural calendar police are the folks who say that you, you mustn't wear light colors before Easter and you absolutely mustn't wear white after Labor Day. I almost thought this morning about wearing linen seersucker and pastels just out of spite. <laughs> the, um, the cultural calendar police are the folks uh, who, who balk when you play Christmas music before December or who tell you that you shouldn't leave your tree up past the new year. If you're one of those self-deputized people, I'm standing against you. Christmas is just too good to celebrate for three weeks a year. I mean, we, we are people of the incarnation, and yet we give it, in the grand scheme, so little attention. Why, why can't I preach an Advent sermon in August? Who, who made that rule? I mean, I, I tend to follow it, but I want to know who made it. Why can't I preach an Easter sermon on the second Sunday of January? Well, I am. Because not only are we people of the incarnation, we're people of the resurrection. Right? We, are, we are people of the resurrection, and the resurrection deserves more attention than just one Sunday a year. The resurrection is the very basis for our faith. It's the very source of our hope. The resurrection is where Paul staked his claim. It's what got him into so much hot water. And that's what we're going to see this morning. And so again, Acts 25, we're going to look at the first 22 verses. Um, let's pray together, and then we'll read this glorious resurrection-themed passage. Heavenly Father, the grass withers and the flowers fade. Seasons change. But what is unchanging, Lord, is you. You are the same yesterday, today, and forever. Your word is faithful. You have given us your word for doctrine, reproof, correction, for training in righteousness that we might be equipped for the good works which you prepared in advance for us to do. And so my prayer this morning, as it is every week, is that as we read your word, that the Holy Spirit would, would do a work even now to open our eyes and unstop our ears and give us receptive hearts. And that, that, we, that we might see Jesus clearly. That we might see our sin and then flee to our Savior. It's in his name we pray. Amen. All right, Acts 25. This is God's holy word. Now three days after Festus had arrived in the province, he went up to Jerusalem from Caesarea. And the chief priest and the principal men of the Jews laid out their case against Paul. 
and they urged him, asking as a, this is Festus, they urged Festus, asking as a favor against Paul, that he summon him to Jerusalem because they were planning to ambush to kill him on the way. And Festus replied that Paul was being kept at Caesarea and that he himself intended to go there shortly. So he said, let the men of authority among you go down with me, and if there is anything wrong about the man, let them bring charges against him. After he stayed among them not more than eight or ten days, he went down to Caesarea. The next day he took his seat on the tribunal and ordered Paul to be brought. When he had arrived, the Jews who had come down from Jerusalem stood around him, bringing many and serious charges against him that they could not prove. Paul argued in his defense, Neither against the law of the Jews, nor against the temple, nor against Caesar have I committed any offense. But Festus, wishing to do the Jews a favor, said to Paul, Do you wish to go up to Jerusalem and there be tried on these charges before me? But Paul said, I am standing before Caesar's tribunal where I ought to be tried. To the Jews I have done no wrong, as you yourself know very well. If then I am a wrongdoer and have committed anything for which I deserve to die, I do not seek to escape death. But if there is nothing to their charges against me, no one can give me up to them. I appeal to Caesar. Then Festus, when he had conferred with his counsel, answered, To Caesar you have appealed, to Caesar you shall go. Now when some days had passed, Agrippa the king and Bernice arrived at Caesarea and greeted Festus. And as they stayed there many days, Festus laid Paul's case before the king, saying, There is a man left prisoner by Felix. And when I was at Jerusalem, the chief priest and the elders of the Jews laid out their case against him, asking for a sentence of condemnation against him. And I answered them that it was not the custom of the Romans to give up anyone before the accused met the accusers face to face and had opportunity to make his defense concerning the charge laid against him. So when they came together here, I made no delay, but on the next day took my seat on the tribunal and ordered the man to be brought. When the accusers stood up, they brought no charge in his case of such evils as I had supposed. Rather, they had certain points of dispute with him about their own religion and about a certain Jesus who was dead, but whom Paul asserted to be alive. Being at a loss how to investigate these questions, I asked whether he wanted to go to Jerusalem and be tried there regarding them. But when Paul had appealed to be kept in custody for the decision of the emperor, I ordered him to be held until I could send him to Caesarea. And then Agrippa said to Festus, I would like to hear the man myself. Tomorrow, said he, you will hear him. May God write his word upon our hearts. Last Sunday afternoon, I received a text that said, Wow, I thought Acts 24 had nothing for you to work with. Well done. Now, now I don't, I don't tell you that in all seriousness to toot my own horn at all, or even commend last week's sermon. I tell you that because this past Monday, I walked into Jason's office mid-morning, and I said, Wow, Acts 25 doesn't give me anything to work with. <laughs> We sat down and we read the chapter together and we talked about it a bit and suddenly the light came on. Jason said, it's all about the resurrection. 
everything here centers around verse 19. So if this sermon resonates with you, I'll give some credit to Jason. If it flops, I'll throw him under the bus. Here's the context. For over two years now, and that's the white space between chapters 24 and 25, Felix was the regional Roman governor. Um, Felix, and we're going to see this, I think next week I will, I will mention this a bit. Felix um, was known uh, for being uh, harsh on, on those in his charge, the Syrians and the Jews. He was also known for being a bit crooked. He was known for taking bribes, as we saw. He kept Paul in prison, hoping that Paul would eventually bribe his way out. Uh, Felix was recalled to Rome by Emperor Nero because his, um, his deeds had, had become known, so he was relieved of command and desiring, one of his last things, you know how presidents when they are leaving office will often issue a, a bunch of executive pardons? Well, Felix did the opposite. As a way of doing the Jews a favor, once he was relieved of command, he chose to leave Paul in prison, and that white space, about a half inch between chapters 24 and 25, covers two years. Felix was replaced by a man named Porcius Festus, and, um, but nothing had changed. The plan had not changed. Um, the Jews wanted Paul dead so badly that they trumped up charges, and they enlisted the Romans to do their dirty work. And much of chapters 21 and 26, or through 26, if you've been with us, much of those chapters are Paul facing one arraignment after another, or one trial and then another. And to be honest, and that's why I told Jason, man, chapter 25 has nothing for me to work with. And that's why this gentleman who texted me said, wow, I didn't think chapter 24 had anything to work with. Because, because it seems like, and if you've been reading it and following it, that these are five chapters of the same thing over and over and over again. The only difference is there are different places and different people and different tribunals, but it's Paul defending himself, making his case, charges being brought against him. But what we see is that all of these arraignments, all of these trials, all of these tribunals were because of Paul's core belief. It's spelled out for us in verse 19. Paul was given the chance to face his accusers, and his accusers were given the chance to make their case against Paul, but we find out very quickly their case was empty. It wasn't just flimsy, it was empty. And so Festus is recounting all of what's gone on to King Agrippa. And I want you to listen again to what Festus told Agrippa in verses 18 and 19. When Paul's accusers stood up, they brought no charge in his case of such evils as I supposed. In other words, Festus was saying, I, I expected this man to be a monster. I expected him to be some sort of crazed animal. Surely this Paul is the worst of the worst because the Jews for two years now are intent on killing him and they will not let it go. But then Festus told Agrippa that all of this hubbub, that, that all of the, the past two years were really about, listen to verse 19, certain points of dispute about their own religion and about a certain Jesus, who was dead, but whom Paul asserted to be alive. Friends, 
Paul gave his life because of a certain man named Jesus. Paul endured these last two years, really three and a half years if we go back, Paul, Paul endured all of that because of a certain man named Jesus and his absolute confidence that Jesus died and rose again. Paul gave his life because he believed with all of his heart that Jesus, who had been crucified, was in fact alive. Ultimately, Paul gave his life for the truth of the resurrection. Every Sunday, every Sunday, one of my overarching aims is to help, is, is to help you understand um, what a passage means and also what it means for you. I didn't say what the passage means to you. You know, one of my, one of my pet peeves going back really to, to college is, is that many Bible studies are little more than pooled ignorance. Before you get offended, let me explain. I, I can't tell you how many times I've sat in a circle with others and, and someone has asked, what does this passage mean to you? I'm sure I'll get an email about this, but I really don't care what it means to you, nor do I care what it means to me. Wait, when you take a, a class on hermeneutics, you're told to discern the semantic intent of the author. I, I care what it means, not really what it means to you, but I do care what it means for you, and I care what it means for me. And I think that we should be asking when we come to a kind of difficult passage like this, which just seems to be Paul on trial, not only what does this passage mean, but what does it mean for me? And so I've got a couple of things that I want to draw out. I believe this passage points us to two truths, two realities that are for, for us. First, the resurrection gospel is our main message and our only defense. The resurrection gospel is our main message and it's our only defense. See, about eight years earlier, we're now around the end of AD 62, where, where this is when uh, these events unfold, bleeding into AD 63, going into the last year or two of Paul's life. But eight years earlier, Paul wrote a letter to the church in Corinth. And in 1 Corinthians 15, he wrote this. Now I want to remind you, brothers, sisters, about the gospel that I preach to you. I want to remind you again about the gospel that I preach to you. And friends, we all need gospel reminders. Martin Luther was once asked by a parishioner why he always, week in and week out, returned to the gospel in his sermons. He said, because you, week in and week out, forget it. He also said that, that we must preach the gospel to ourselves because our heads are like leaky cauldrons. So we have to pound the gospel into our heads because we are stubborn. And so Paul said to the church in Corinth, I'm going to take this opportunity once again to remind you of the gospel. For I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received. The gospel is the message of first importance. The gospel is the message of first importance. It was for Paul personally. It was the basis for his entire ministry. And so what is the gospel message of first importance? You don't have to turn there, but just make note of it in 1 Corinthians 15. Paul says, I, I delivered to you 
this, this primary message, the God, this message of first importance. I'm going to tell you again about the gospel. And then he writes this, that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the scriptures, that he was buried, that he was raised the third day in accordance with the scriptures. That's the gospel. There is no gospel without resurrection. There's no good news if Jesus died for our sins but stayed dead. I don't know if this has sunk in yet, but the Iowa caucuses are 22 days away, and we're about to be inundated with political messaging, political debates. Now, you're probably wondering, Jeremy, why are you introducing good news in a, or bad news in a passage about good news? Let me explain. So over the next several months, the Democratic candidates will bite and devour one another, and they'll debate, and eventually the last one standing, whoever it is, will debate President Trump. And I want you to pay attention to one thing in particular, whether it's in the, um, whether it's in the primary season or the general election, I want you to pay attention in these debates. If you've ever watched a debate, you may have noticed, and it's incredibly frustrating for just the average person, the moderator of the debate will ask a question of a candidate, and the question might be about domestic policy, or it might be about foreign policy, or it could be about the economy, or immigration, or education, or any number of topics. But when the candidate answers the question, they don't actually answer the question. They just come back to the same tired talking points. And I want you to understand why that is. Because before the debate, in the days and weeks uh, bef before that particular debate, the, the candidates, handlers, and political advisors have told them, at Tuesday's debate, you're going to focus on immigration, just as one example. And you're going to stick to your talking points no matter what. And you're going to keep working in those one-liners and zingers that we've been rehearsing now for a few days. And no matter what you're asked, you're going to bring the discussion back to immigration. And it's, it's frustrating for us because the question may have been about the growing national debt, but somehow the answer that's given is about immigration. And I, I know there's obviously connection there. But it's frustrating because they're asked about one thing and they give a different answer. And what does any of that have to do with the gospel and resurrection? I think we can actually learn something from politicians. We can learn to stick to the message and to not veer too far off point and to always come back to this issue of first importance. The resurrection gospel must be our issue. So when someone asked, ask, are, are, you a, are you this kind of church? Are you a regulative principle church? Are you, a, uh, are you an ordinary means of grace church? Are you an XYZ church? I, I don't want to talk about that. I want to talk about the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus kind of church. And if there's one plank in our platform, it's that Jesus died for sinners and rose again. Notice again verse 19 says the Jews had certain points of dispute with Paul. Points of dispute related to Jesus and the resurrection. And I want to say just a word about that. I, I'm a member of, uh, of a Facebook group of 
Presbyterian pastors and elders. I'm actually a member of a few similar groups. And if I could use one phrase to describe the post on that Facebook page, it would be certain points of dispute. (laughs) Guys will dispute over anything and everything. Do you know that if you look up the word argumentative in a dictionary, there are two descriptions? One is every teenager who's ever lived, and the other is Presbyterians. (laughs) It's part of our family dysfunction. We dispute with one another inside the church. We dispute with people outside the church. And many times it is over so many unimportant things. Let me actually rephrase that. It's not that our disputes are unimportant. It's not the conversations and debates and good-natured engagement that we have is, is unimportant. It's that it's so less important than the resurrection gospel. A certain Jesus and the resurrection are worth disputing over. If Jesus did not rise from the dead, then then this means nothing. If Jesus didn't rise from the dead, then this means nothing. If Jesus did rise from the dead, then this means everything. But too often, we make much about little and little about much. And there's a place for battle, there's a place for dispute. But if we're going to get caught up in a battle, like the battles that Paul faced in his later years, let's make sure that it's worthy of the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus. It's our main message. So we we learn from our politicians that we're going to come back to this. These are our talking points. Jesus lived, he died, he rose again. We're going to come back to that. We're going to stay on point. When we dispute, when we disagree, when we argue, there's a place for all of that, but we're going to make sure that it's worthy of the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus. It's our only defense. That's the first truth. Here's a second truth that I believe is for us. The resurrection gospel is our only comfort in life and death. It's our only comfort. Earlier in the service, we recited the, the Heidelberg Catechism. And um, because of the way that we structure our bulletins, it's written in paragraph form. But if you were to, if you were to read the Heidelberg Catechism, it, it's, it's more set off and indented with three clauses and then a fourth, therefore. That everything in that first question builds up to the last phrase. So when I ask, what is your only comfort in life and death? Everything else which is a lot like the Nicene Creed, the Apostles' Creed, it all builds up to the therefore. Therefore, by his Holy Spirit, he assures me of eternal life. Our eternal life, which begins in this life, is rooted in the fact that Jesus lives and we live with him. It's as simple as that. Paul writes about it in Romans 6. That that we've we've died with Christ, that we are raised with him. That this, this hope that we have, the hope that we have in this life, the hope that we have for the life to come, it's all rooted in the resurrection. That's our only comfort. I mentioned at Jill Belanger's uh, family gathering memorial service, I, I told the family just a quick story that for years I hated funerals. I hated memorial services. I dreaded doing them. But then a handful of years ago, 
I was talking with a, a friend who happens to be a pastor, and I was, I was expressing that, that I, I hate doing funerals. And he said, oh man, I love them. He said, because they're, they're at least one time where I am given the clear hope of the resurrection. There, there at least one time where if that person is a believer, and even if they're not, we're pointed to the clear hope of the resurrection. That, that our hope for the life to come Apart from the resurrection gospel, there's no hope. It's our only comfort in life and death. It's our only comfort in this life. So, so notice what Paul said to Festus. Notice what he said before his accusers in verse 11. If then I am a wrongdoer and have committed anything for which I deserve to die, I do not seek to escape death. Now, we're going to find out in the later parts of this chapter and next chapter that Paul didn't actually believe he had done anything wrong. His conscience was clear. But notice that he said, I do not seek to escape death. Those aren't words of bravado. He's not puffing out his chest. He's not even trying to provoke them. Those are simply words of confidence. If, if I've done something wrong and, and, it, and it's proven... I'm not trying to escape death. Paul doesn't fear death. Why? Because verse 19, he believes in a certain Jesus who conquered death. Friends, the resurrection gospel, the resurrection gospel is the only basis for confidence and comfort. And that's the reason why I think we, we give the resurrection short shrift when we only address it one Sunday a year or occasionally. That we are people of the resurrection, and apart from that, we have no confidence in this life or no confidence for the life to come. We, we belong to God. God is preserving us. You confessed it a moment ago. I hope you believed it. That nothing will happen to us in this life, and nothing can happen to us in this life. That's beyond God's control. That is outside of his gospel plan. So what does this mean for you? It means that when we face difficult situations, I, I know Paul didn't want to be in this situation. He wouldn't have chosen this for himself. But when we face situations like Paul, when we find ourselves caught in the middle, that was last week's sermon, caught in the middle, living as, living as citizens of Christ's heavenly kingdom, but also citizens of this earthly nation. When we're caught betwixt and between, when we're pressed in from all sides, we confess it, do we believe it? That nothing will happen or can happen in this life that God is not in control, that not a single hair falls from our head that he hasn't ordained. And that all of that, all of that points us to the resurrection. That it gives us hope, it gives us hope in this life, it gives us hope for eternal life. The gospel has a resurrection heartbeat. It's the source of our hope, it's the answer for every trial. And really what that means is that it's always Easter Sunday. right? And tomorrow will be Easter Monday. And that's, that's good news. In fact, that's the only good news. That this certain Jesus, that, that you're obviously here putting your, your confidence in this certain Jesus, 
not only gave his life, but lives for you. Let's thank him for that in prayer. Heavenly Father, I said it earlier as, as I was praying, but cr- we often focus the, the cross behind me, the cross um, on the baptismal font. Um, the image of the cross is, is an, is an Im- image, an instrument of death, and so it is right that we, we, folk, we focus on Christ's death for sin. It, it's so hard to envision and to put on necklaces and to um, wear as a charm or to put in a sanctuary the empty tomb. But yet Christ didn't simply die, he lives again, and all of that is the good news of the gospel. Paul tells us that if the gospel, if the, if the resurrection isn't true, then we are a pitiful people. We should just stay home and have brunch and read the New York Times and catch up on the week's news. It'd be far better use of our time than coming here if the resurrection isn't true. But we believe in a certain Jesus who died and who now lives. Paul believed it. And so he gave his very life for it. You don't give your life for something that you don't believe to be true. And hundreds of thousands have given their life for they believe to be true. And my prayer this morning is that those who are maybe hearing this for the first time, they're hearing, they, they maybe have heard the, 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 the term, the gospel, but really the simplicity and what it means that Christ dies for sinners, that he lives for sinners, and in union with him, his hope is our hope. Lord, would you... If, if they're hearing this for the first time, or if this is news to them, would you take the truth and write it upon their hearts? Would they believe in Jesus by faith? And for the many of us um, who have believed that, we are believing that, like Luther said, we need to come back to it again and again because tomorrow something will happen and that good news will leak. Or we're stubborn and it'll have to be once again pounded into our heads. And so what I'm praying is what I prayed at the beginning of the sermon, that your Holy Spirit would do for us what we can't do for ourselves. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.